Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight. So glad you were sharing your evening with us. Couldn't be more delighted, actually, because we've got a great guest tonight. Before we get into that, though, I do want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. You can find him if you Google Native Storytellers. Uh, He and his wife are professional storytellers and have been carrying on that tradition for decades and decades and decades. And if you've never experienced any of the Native um, myths, told by a storyteller you've you've missed something special so google him check it out it's an adventure in itself and far better than textbooks for sure tonight we're going to be looking into a subject that is near and dear to my heart and uh, it's a book called precognitive dream work and the long self written by eric wargo it's um it's an amazingly insightful book and and it does help us to to see another level of of what we you know flip off as just it was just a dream well no it's not this this book outlines a set of clear principles to help guide dream workers um and he's illustrated it through real precognitive dream experience uh experiences he shows how to detect precognitive dreams through their characteristic features explaining how dreams relate to memory and why dreams about future experiences are often symbolic or distorted. And he explores the mind-blowing implications of precognition of our lives, lives including how our present thoughts actually shape or shaped our past. Once only the stuff of science fiction, evidence has shown, has grown that precognition, that's glimpses of our future and dreams and visions and being influenced subtly in waking our waking life by what has come is real. Your future thoughts and feelings shape who you are now and your present thoughts and feelings shape or shaped your past. Eric shows how dream workers can play the role of citizen scientists, adding to our understanding of this fascinating, almost unexplained dimension of human life. 
Drawing on psychoanalysis and contemporary sleep science, he explores how precognition relates to memory, explaining why dreams of future experiences are often distorted and what those distortions probably mean. He discusses never-before-described dream features, including time gimmicks, that's symbols hinting at time distortion, and calendaral resonance, the tendency of dreams to foretell experiences exactly a year or years later. He describes why an understanding of precognitive augments Jung's theory of synchronicity by highlighting our own role in producing meaningful coincidences in our waking lives, and he also shows how precognition manifests in other states of consciousness like lucid dreams, out-of-body experience, trance states, sleep paralysis, and meditation. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in anthropology from Emory University and works as a science writer and editor in Washington, D.C., and in his spare time, he writes about science fiction consciousness and the paranormal at his popular blog, The Nightshirt. So it is with great pleasure that Nightlight welcomes Nightshirt, Nightshirt <laughs> to the show. Welcome, Eric. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you for having me on. It's, you know, your book I found fascinating because um, like like just about everybody, you know, we, we look at dreams and we think, oh, if that were only true, and we kind of fluff them off as it's just our imagination. And I'm really glad you wrote the book because it does help people to understand that this is not just fluff. Um, our dreams are trying to tell us something and it's it's sort of like um you've you've termed the long you've you've sort of termed the long self um into other you've turned what i call higher consciousness or the spirit within into long consciousness so i kind of am curious how you how you came to um renaming that aspect of our consciousness to the long self and and how come it's called the long self yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I've been working with with uh, precognitive dreams for several years and sort of grappling with the implications of dream precognition, which I assume we'll get to um, later in the show, sort of defining what that is and and so on. But what it awakens to you, and when you realize how it's working, that this is not, you know, you're not receiving information from some divine source or, some, or, or from some, you know, if you're not getting information from outside of you, what you're, what you're getting information from is from your future. And when you realize uh-huh. that your future exists, you have a future, that you extend through time, you know, you know years, decades, you know, ahead uh, in time. Um, That is a real paradigm shift for understanding oneself, you know? And it, Uh you know, it's not surprising that we have a past, right? I mean, we have a past that extends back to our birth, you know? Um, Uh If not before, I don't even delve into the metaphysical, you know, (laughs) possible metaphysical possibilities. But, uh, you know, at least in terms of our physical existence, 
here on earth. We have a life and a biography, and that's not surprising, but something, you know, in our culture gets us to forget that and gets us to think of the past as dead and gone and irrelevant and of, and to think of the future as, well, how could the future possibly be relevant to who I am now or to how, what, what I'm doing now? Um, you know, there's, you know, still see a million versions of that quote that, you know, the past is gone, the future doesn't exist and all there is is right now. Well, you know, the opposite of a great truth is another great truth. And that's that, that we are, that our past still exists and our future already exists. And that's what precognitive dream work really awakens you to. And it, so it got me to start thinking of the self, not as a collection of qualities, you know, personality and so on uh, in the way that I think people tend to think of it. But to think of the self as something uh, that that uh, extends through time, that is long, you know, that is that that is um, uh, unfolding, you know, over decades, and um, uh, and that is, you know, the, the it's not just going in a single direction. <laughs> um, uh-huh. What precognitive dream work reveals is that. Uh, things that you did when you were a kid or when you were young were actually kind of shaped or bent a little bit by things that were were going to happen later in your life. And, Uh you know, that's a, that's a real major paradigm shift for understanding who we are, I think. And so the long self comes from, from that paradigm shift, I think. And then, and there's, you know, there's precedent for it in uh, Eastern thought. You know, there's the long body um, uh-huh. in, uh, I'm not sure what tradition that is, but, uh, you know, the idea that, that we extend through time, I think, uh, I think it has, you know, I think it's described a little bit better, I think, in some Eastern traditions. Now, I'm going to have to step out of my metaphysical closet here and and step into a more scientifically oriented closet um, because of course you know I'm, I'm I'm metaphysical to the eyeballs however um, I do believe that, that your material um, does apply and play into a, a lot of the philosophies that I hold to um, for instance I firmly believe that a child before they're four years old it if you look at the things they're interested in and that they show they show um, capacity for if you pay attention and you um, help them to explore those areas, that those are areas that would probably more greatly benefit them in the future of this lifetime if you help them to to sort of generate more interest in them. Um, you know, I used mm-hmm. to play teacher when I was a child. I became a teacher. I used to have funerals for pets or dolls, whatever, you know, whatever needed to be buried. Um, and, and I became a minister. And I loved painting the, the paper doilies that that you get under pastries. And um, I eventually created a deck of cards that were hand-painted mandalas. 
So mm-hmm. it's I do mm-hmm. I do believe that there are that there are hints in childhood that can help you have a richer adulthood if they are if they are worked with and and or if a person at this point in time goes back and checks them out and decides to maybe explore some of them so that I I think that in some ways our mind does hold where we have greater talent and it's a matter of being able to tap into where that material is stored and then and then generating it into adulthood so that it can manifest more fully for you as you get older. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. Where I where I I think it goes beyond that though. I mean, I think that it's not just these sort of potentials that are like latent in us, but I think that uh, I've really come to uh, believe quite strongly that our future experiences, our future life experiences, uh, and our future, you know, conscious thoughts and feelings and and things uh, are are actually already in our heads, you know, in a very kind of symbolic, indirect, unfocused fashion uh, when uh-huh. we're younger. It's it's you know it's not just some sort of potential uh, that we have, but it's our actual our actual future <laughs> is already there, uh, sort of drawing us towards it. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, but is it, it takes though being sensitive to to that material is there. It, it takes it takes some sort of. Uh, a sensitivity to be able to recognize that there is something that's pulling at you and and quite obviously it it happens subtly in dream work or daydream work or you know or meditation or any 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 um, way that you get into that kind of receptivity state within your reality to pick up the hints at this and, and then it then it behooves you to follow through on those hints if you can interpret them. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. So so you recommend and, and you recommend something that I recommend as well that people keep a dream journal and um I mean I can't I can't say I mean your book is constantly saying write your dreams down write your dreams down and and it makes great sense, and it, it, it is a way of getting information from that part of you that that is under many, many, many layers of, of um, even if you want to go into, um, you know, alpha, beta, theta states. Um, it's there. It's a matter of allowing yourself to be in that state to retrieve that information. And, yeah, um, it's... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. Um, go, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, oh well, yeah, absolutely. It's it's crucial to 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 write down your dreams, and it's 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 kind of sad that people have lost that mentality. You know, back uh, a century ago, um, you know, everyone was paying attention to their dreams. You know, you know, the influence of Sigmund Freud and and his uh-huh. psychoanalytic school, and then shortly thereafter, you know, the Jungian tradition that sort of branched off of of Freud's movement and other, you know, other sort of parallel movements that kind of emerged. Um, you know, everyone was paying attention to their dreams. You know, the surrealists, you know, were paying attention to their dreams. It was, it was, you know, the dream, the dream world was, was 
however you interpreted it or however you you understood what dreaming was, everyone agreed that dreams were important. And so if you were a, a thoughtful, seeking person, artistic, creative, uh, whatever, intuitive, you know, there was just, yeah, I mean, you, you wrote your dreams down and you interpreted them and you talked about them with friends and you, uh, you know, you spent a lot of time on your dream life. You know, you, you engaged in kind of what I sometimes call dream hygiene, you know, mm-hmm. and we've lost that. Um, and it's really sad. It's quite sad. Uh, even among, you know, the, the kinds of people that I <laughs> sort of hang out with, at least online, you know, uh, uh, metaphysical type and new uh-huh. majors and parapsychologists and, and, you know, people interested in the paranormal. Um, very few of them really pay much attention to dreams, you know, and they cert- and very few people actually keep a dream journal. And boy, we've got to get back to that. We've really cut off a huge part of ourselves. Um, well, I, I think you're, you're, it partly has, you know. You're, abso- you're absolutely right. And, but, but, and, and it's not a huge but, but it's a little but. Um, since I read your book, I've been, I've been, you know, really working at making sure that I wrote down bits and pieces that I remember when I wake up. But, mm-hmm. but oh, my gosh, you've got to grab it fast. I mean, if you decide oh, I'll go to the bathroom and then I'll write it down, it's gone. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's just um, then it's a matter of, okay, how much of it can I remember? And you, know, you get pieces of it. So it, it is a talent and a, and a skill that you need to work on. It's not something that happens mm-hmm. overnight. But mm-hmm. how do you tell the difference between a waking dream because we you know the waking dreams and the go to sleep dreams are are the ones that we are most likely to remember um mm-hmm. which how do you how do you tell the difference between you know a daydream and and a waking dream and a you know how how do you determine what is your imagination trying that is what is imaginative in other words what are you what kind of a scenario are you trying to you know weave into your reality before you actually get out of bed and what was actually a dream that had messages in it for you how do you tell the difference between the two well i think what you're sort of referring to is really more the what's often called the hypnopompic state uh, that, you know, that's that state that you're in when you're hitting the snooze button in the morning and you kind of drift mm-hmm. in and out of, of consciousness and they're sort of, it's a bit dreamlike, it's, it's very rich, but you may be kind of very actively thinking, you know, going through some preoccupation or problem or, uh, or whatever. And so it seems kind of like, well, how, you know, is this me just being, you know, daydreaming, like you say, or, or whatever. The, the key is is learning to recognize thoughts that don't feel like you thought them. You know, recognize images that um, that on with just a second of hindsight go, oh, that was really weird, and I that's you know that was dreamlike in the sense that you know that came to me. That was not me actively uh, actively creating a scenario in my head. I mean, when we're when we're fully awake and we imagine something. Um, you know, mentally rehearsing, 
you know, giving a lecture tomorrow, you know, like I can, I uh-huh. can, you know, I can, I can rehearse it in my head in order to feel more secure about what I'm going to say and how I'm going to look, you know, uh, doing it. But that's me, you know, that's me, you know, creating a little mental diorama, <clears throat> you know, and, uh-huh. and moving myself like an action figure in that diorama, you know, I'm deliberately shaping that scenario but a but a dream or a hypnopompic uh image or a scene or a hypnagogic scene that's that's hypnagogia as, as you're falling asleep those uh really are, are spontaneous you're not actively creating that <clears throat> now we can talk there's you know there are sort of in between states like lucid dreams we can talk about that you know but uh-huh. even there you know the bulk of it you know, even if you're able to sort of exert a certain amount of control and direct and direct your actions, uh, nevertheless, it's it's sort of has spontaneously arisen. Uh, it, it's generally it's not something you are deliberately creating. And learning to to tell the difference between between deliberate directed thought and a dream or a dreamlike. Uh, image is really uh, it's it, that's crucial for working in those in between states on um, as as you're falling asleep or as you're waking up, uh, learning to recognize the difference between your own you know your own directed thought directed imagination and and just what sort of spontaneously arises. Training in meditation really helps because uh-huh. if you have training in meditation, you know how to sort of get a little bit of distance on your thought stream. Right, and to sort of watch passively thoughts arise, uh, and what would, the more training you, more experience you have doing that, the easier it is to kind of recognize in the moment. Uh, oh wow, this is a hypnagogic image. You know, th- this is uh, because in the moment when you're doing it, it just feels very rational and normal. This is a normal train of thought, and then you know, but you have that little pause, that little get that little separation between you and the thought to realize, Oh wow, that was just really bizarre. That was <laughs> you know, totally <laughs> irrational. And that's, you know, that's the hallmark of, uh, of dream. And, uh, and yeah, those, those kinds of images, those kinds of non-directed thoughts, uh, images, uh, uh, monologue, you know, often that, uh, that can happen in waking life. That can happen in a ride. It happens in meditation, uh, very often, some people, I think some sort of segment of the population, uh, people who make good psychics, <laughs> basically, are uh-huh. able to kind of access that much more readily in waking life. Um, uh, and, you know, I know a lot of people like that who, are, who, who readily, you know, an image will arise or they'll have a vision, you know, a waking vision. Um, uh-huh. Uh, you know, so yes, that that state is very, very precognitive in the same way as dreams. I focus on dreams in the book because that's what most people uh, find easiest. You know, most people, uh, you know, even if you've never had a vision or never had a, uh, never even been aware of, you know, hypnagogia or, or hypnopompic states, ever, you know, most people. You know, you know they they know what you're talking about when you're talking about a dream, and uh, and and all you have to do is just write down what you remember of your dreams when you wake up, and you're doing it. You're doing dream work of one sort or another um, uh-huh. when you do that. Uh, so since it's sort of the most you know for beginners uh, at accessing their uh, precognitive side, 
you know, basic night dreams, your vanilla night dreams, those are the easiest, uh, easiest to work with. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's why I focus on, on those. But, yeah, there is a whole spectrum. Now, is every, now I think one of the main things that, that came up out of reading your book was that the dreams, almost all of them have a precognitive aspect to them, but no, very few dreams are literal. Usually right. there's, there's interpretation that has to come in here. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is one of the people that that I'm trying to do in this book. Uh, you know, you'll read books about ESP and about psychic dreams and precognitive dreams, and there are a number of uh, preconceptions that you're going to get from those books. A that they're literal, and you know, there's certainly examples of those, um, uh, but they're way in the minority. Another another preconception that you're going to get from those books that goes along with that literal that that idea that they're literal is that they are mainly about big big events like deaths and disasters and and uh, tragedies of one sort or another. Um, uh-huh. Absolutely not. I mean, the vast majority of precognitive dreams are really about very relatively mundane upheavals ahead and you know by upheaval i mean something like you know the sink backing up or you know some embarrassing situation at work or something like you know they're they're on that level Um, because Uh our lives you know generally most of our most of our lives are pretty boring which is a good thing you know (laughs) we're not in the trenches we're not we're not living a a life of a james bond you know we're we're not you know, our lives are not that intense and there's not that much at stake in most of the things that happen to us most days, you know. Uh, now, that's not to say that big events don't happen. I mean, and and certainly those those do, you know, stand out in the landscape of, of, of precognitive dreaming. But uh, most dreams are about mundane events. They're not literal sort of video, what I call video quality uh, representations of what's going to happen, although that, that those kinds of dreams do happen, and some people are very prone to them. But usually they're at least distorted enough that it's, it's not going to be obvious. You know, the, the connection is not going to be obvious unless you reflect on it afterwards. Uh, or they're totally symbolic, and you need to do some sort of – you need to do some free association to, to realize the connection. Um, so those are those are two of the, the three big myths. I'd say the third big myth uh, that also goes along with those two is that precognitive dreams somehow feel different from other dreams. Um, that they're numinous. You'll see that word numinous always thrown around uh, in connection to precognitive dreams. And that's not at all the case. Uh, you know, yeah, some some dreams feel like wow, that's that's gonna ha-, you know that was a premonition somehow, and yeah, it may may turn out to be. But in fact, your most mundane, boring-seeming, trivial, or stupid-seeming dreams can be just as precognitive uh, as those those so-called numinous ones. And that's why I say you've got to record all of them in as much detail as you can, um, because you will find amazing connections to the most boring, 
boring-seeming dream. Uh, and in fact, those boring-seeming dreams, you know, are more likely, you're, you're almost more likely to get a connection to those because they may connect to something that's going to happen that day or the next day. Um, and, and you'll be really rewarded <laughs> by having that written, <laughs> uh, that written dream that then, boom, it, it, it's so obvious about, so obviously about some, uh, some experience, you know, that happened at work, you know, two days later or, or something your kids said, something, you know, totally random that your kids did or said, you know, it's, 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 it's those little, uh, it's almost, I almost find that those little seemingly nothing innocuous dreams are often more, even more interesting sometimes. So, yeah, it's just, it goes back to the, the basic uh, <laughs> precept, I guess, of my teaching, <laughs> which is that you have to record all your dreams. Well, it, I, I think the one precognitive dream that I remember, I, Jean Dixon was a very famous um, psychic, mm-hmm. and she had a recurring dream of the White House with a dark cloud over it draped in black, and she kept trying to contact um, President Kennedy with mm-hmm. you know that yeah. information and she was never able to get through but but they they have it you know it's recorded they they did you know mm-hmm. had proof that she had tried to get through with that information so but mm-hmm. you know um and and every now and then you know but but knowing you have this capacity what does that do to your life i mean how do we use it okay mm-hmm. so 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 i'm i'm able to grab and 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 every now and then I, I have been able to grab a dream and it was you know it, it felt like there was it felt like there was more information in there than I actually could could conceive of initially and so you know I when when I tell people to write their dreams down I say leave a leave a blank page after every dream so that you can right. come back to it look at it and and reevaluate and re you know and you know if it, if it if something happened that was close to this then write it down and and see if it doesn't help to beef out exactly what was going what 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 you were trying to tell you i mean yeah. if if this if this is indeed a way of talking to your longer self um that that has a greater capacity to help you make your life richer then you know how do we use our dreams to make life richer i mean and i'm not talking money i'm talking understanding mm-hmm. and and you know understanding the journey we're on each lifetime yeah well the, the you know the first you know the, the first phase is just uh you need to convince yourself of the reality of this it's not enough to read about it it's not enough to read you know some famous person's premonition that came true you know that that uh-huh. unfortunately you know in the well, that's what people are left with by typical ESP books. You know, they'll you know they'll have some some pretty pretty amazing cases from some famous person who had a premonition. For instance, Gene Dixon's you know premonitions of JFK's assassination, uh, things like uh-huh. that. It's like, okay, wow, that's that's pretty cool. But um, it, it doesn't uh, a it doesn't you know it, it leaves you with the idea. Well, psychics can maybe do this um, and. Again, it only happens around big disasters like 9/11 or a presidential assassination or something like that. Um, no, I mean you need to 
do this work and show yourself that, in fact, you are doing this all the time in your dreams. I mean, the reason we don't, we're not aware of it is that nobody, you know, even people who write down their dreams, which, again, very few people do anymore, even people who do that uh-huh. don't go back to their dream records, you know, after a short period of time, like what you're saying. That's the, that is the key. That's what makes dream work precognitive dream work. Going back to your records, what I, the, the recommendation Here's the recommendation. I'll give you know I'll give your listeners the you know the basic uh, methodology of precognitive dream work is you know one write your dreams down in, in in as much detail as you can remember. Two, and here's a step we haven't talked about, but it's very important. Free associate on your dream. That's where that page that you're talking about leaving an extra page comes in. But I say you do it right away. You know, write your dream down, and if you have time, or at least sometime that day, just reflect on what, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind from the dream as a whole and also from specific elements or symbols in the dream. You know, a, a particular person, you know, appears in your dream, you haven't thought about that person in years. You know, what's the first thing that comes to mind about that person? You know, or what's the first thing that this object in the dream or, the, or a place in the dream, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It may be something completely random, you know, unrelated seemingly to the dream, but write those associations down uh, because you'll find often that it's that association that is the connection to the, the later event. But then step three, at the end of every day, you know, you write your dreams down, free associate if you can, and then just set them aside. Don't, don't even think about your dreams during the day, but, but then go back to them at night. At the end of the day, just look at your dream records from that day and also the previous I'd say two days. So basically look at your last three nights of dreams every, every time you go to bed. And just re- that's when you sort of reflect on, well, you know, reflect on what's happened in, during the day, you know, over those last, those last few days and reflect on any similarities between waking experiences and the dream, the explicit dreams you wrote down and also with the associations that you wrote down about those dreams, because that's where you're going to then start detecting that, Oh, oh wow. That dream uh, was, you know, wow, that was about this, you know, that weird little random thing that happened yesterday, you know, and, and often it's not the most important thing that happened in your day, but it's, it's nevertheless, it stands out in your memory and it's like, Oh wow, that's really cool. And so the more you, you notice this happening, the more you can, like, you know, I put a little star every dream that I can, that, that has a, uh, seems to have a precognitive reference in something that happened, you know, um, you know, within the next two days or maybe a week or two weeks, uh, whatever, you know. And the more you, you get a dream journal that's full of those stars and, like, wow, you, you start having this experience. Uh, because every, every precognitive dream is mind-blowing. You know, it's like it's 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 one thing to read about it. It's another thing to experience it in your own life. Like, oh my God, I dreamed about this totally unpredictable random experience uh, that happened later. You know, and that goes against everything we have been taught since childhood about causality and about how the world works. You know, it goes against uh-huh. everything, <laughs> and that's and it and it's mind blowing. The trouble is when you have an experience like that, and this is, this is true of any paranormal experience, when you have it once, 
you're liable to go, you know, it's, wow, it's like, uh, you know, mind-bending at first and paradigm-altering, but then, after, you know, give it a couple of days, and it's like doubt creeps in, and you start uh-huh. doubting yourself, and like, oh, maybe that didn't happen, or maybe I'm just deceiving myself, or whatever. It's very easy to just kind of let doubt kind of wash away a single one-off paranormal experience. But when you start experiencing that and having these hits, uh, you know, once, you know, once a week, once multiple times a week, um, it, over time, it it wears away the doubt and you're, and then you're, then you're in a new place. Then you're in a new place in terms of how you understand the world, how you understand psychology as it's been taught, (laughs) how you understand Uh causality, how you understand a lot of things. That that is a real rupture from who you were in the past to who you are now. That's a kind of initiation. I call it a gnosis. You know, it's a it's a it's really is a kind of gnosis. Um and see the point yeah, the point as you said, it's not this isn't about getting rich in the lottery. I mean it's very, (laughs) very rare. Although it's not unheard of. I don't want to say that it won't happen, but it's it's very rare to dream of winning lottery numbers or dream of of something that you can readily act on uh, and 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 uh, take it to the bank. Um, and but there are there are again there are counterexamples. I can even talk about some really cool examples of people who did make a lot of money with their precognitive dreams. But uh, by and large, that's not what this is going to allow you to do. What it's going to do is is bring you to that point where, wow, reality is not what you thought it was. Time is not what you thought it was. And your consciousness, you're, you are not who you thought you were. And you start to realize that you are a long self. Okay? And that that is a, that's an initiation right there. And, and that opens the door then to rethinking your whole life, reexamining your whole life. Uh, from the standpoint of, well, if the future is influencing me, if only at night during my dreams, but possibly even in waking life, if the future is influencing me now, that means that me now (laughs) having some experience, you know, sort of standout experience in my day, that is somehow influencing my past. That influenced my past. And when you start to think about that and start to, to think about these subterranean connections, and I sort of think of the life, one's life as a landscape, and you walk from one end of the landscape to the other, um, you start to realize that there's this whole subterranean cave system in that landscape that you've never, you know, you, you, you're just maybe frightened by or you've been ignoring these, you know, these caves and grottos in the landscape. But in fact, those are like those those grottos or those caves are like are connections, subterranean connections to other points in your life. Uh, literally, um, that's that's mind blowing. Uh, and I give some, you know, I, I I have some examples in the book of 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 precognitive, powerful precognitive dream experiences that that spanned decades in people's lives and were really decisive in shaping a person's younger self and a person's life trajectory 
um, because of some powerful experience happening later in their life. Um, and inevitably, we, we, uh, the younger self inevitably misunderstands the messages that come from the future. I think there are reasons, there, there are important reasons why that's always going to be the case. Um, but, but nevertheless, understanding how we were shaped in our lives by our later lives um, uh-huh. in hindsight is just utterly mind-blowing. And well, it just... It, it it raises the level of, of the value of our lives, I think, you know, by a factor of, you know, 10. It just makes our lives so much more valuable and and interesting and wonderful, you know. Well, who who then programs the future that is pre, not pre, precognitively giving us hints? And, and I know you're going to say us, but at what point in time have we written the stuff that we are picking up precognitively? At no one point come... in time. That's the point. That's the thing. We're writing it our whole lives. You know, we're 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 writing our future. You know, in this in the normal forward in time linear sense, uh-huh. we're writing our futures in our in our young in our past. That's you know, no one has any problem with that idea. But the thing is, we are also our older selves are also co-writing. Uh, our younger selves. It's a collaborative project. You know, essentially we are, we are, yeah, yes, we are writing our biographies, but it's a collaboration. It's a collaboration between, you know, our, <laughs> among our, you know, myriad uh, aspects of ourselves that they unfold, you know, across the, the span of life. So, you know, it's really a co, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a collaborative work. <laughs> it's a collaborative work so, so, by yourself. <laughs> yourself is a so, collaboration. So, so that does not take away the element of free will, because if we're doing the writing, then we have the free will to write. Okay, so okay, so that being the case, we have different levels of consciousness. So it would be the, that higher level, the long self, that is writing doing the co-authoring for the consciousness or is it or, to, to me it's it's like if my consciousness was actually programming what's going to come i i would roll my sleeves up but i don't think it's my consciousness because i don't think i know enough about what what i need to know for what's coming but the long self right. would 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 have a better idea as to what area of, of development I need to be involved in, or whatever. Well, so your, if, your later life self. Let's let's put it that way. I don't I don't think there is some other consciousness sort of hovering above me right now. Uh, that my that's not what the long self is. The long self is this this long succession of 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 conscious thinking and reflecting and acting. Um, over the course of life, and when we're young, it's pretty naive and pretty crude. And as uh-huh. we get older and more wise and more and know more, um, it can be incredibly uh, smart. And uh, but you know, we also lose things in the process too, right? I mean, so the there's there's uh, I, I think that's what I mean by a collaboration. I think the long self is not a single 
you know, higher entity hovering above me somehow. It's, it's simply the whole of my four-dimensional reality um, and the sort of interaction, that kind of interaction between a more conscious self that's kind of in the, in the last, <laughs> the later years <laughs> of that progression. Um, you know, I, tend, I think we, we generally kind of become more conscious over the course of life. Uh, maybe, and maybe there's kind of ups and downs there, but I think there's a general trend towards increased consciousness uh, as we become wiser and older. Um, and uh-huh. so that, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to talk about a higher consciousness, I'm going to talk about that, that more, uh, that, that consciousness looking back, that kind of reflective hindsight consciousness that, that knows just a little bit more than the younger self did, you know, or knows a lot more uh-huh. than the younger self did. And particularly if we're putting effort into understanding our lives, for instance, through precognitive dream work and life work, um, then, you know, that's, that's elevating that, that consciousness of the latter portion of our life that much more. Um, but it's never fully conscious. You know, the, the, that's one thing about precognition. It's not about consciousness. It's an unconscious. It's an unconscious uh, uh-huh. factor. I mean, even, you know, even someone who is a, a uh, developed, trained, skilled precog, you know, someone who's really, you know, in tune with their precognitive nature, nevertheless, they're, Precognition, nevertheless, is always operating through the avenues that, that Freud called the unconscious. You know, that is through dreams, and that is through, through, um, you know, our symptoms and through our feelings and through things that are kind of outside the realm of our conscious, deliberate thought. Um, so it's always a kind of unconscious. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm more comfortable factor. with that because because yeah. the unconscious mind has access to, I think, greater wisdom that has been experienced and sort of logged in that in a conscious mm-hmm. state we might not draw upon. So well, the way that I, makes- you know, the way, yeah. Well, the, I hear what you're saying, and, 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 and here's how I would, I would, based on my experience with this, how I would reframe that, is that the wisdom really comes from us, our, our conscious, you know, awareness and our conscious understanding at various points in our life, but it's the unconscious that is able to share, that is able to, to, uh, to take that information from the future and, and carry it uh, into the past and vice versa, carry it from the past to the future. The, the, the unconscious is kind of the, the river or the currents that, that, that you know, or that, like I said, that, under, that underground cave system that sort of enables, you know, wisdom from our future to reach into the past and guide us. Um, so it's kind of the, the mechanism, <laughs> you know, for, you know, self-communication across time. Um, I didn't mean to, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you, but that's sort of, that's how I kind of would reframe that, that oh, yeah, sort of yeah, no, we're just Oh, we're just talking semantics. Remember, I come from yeah. metaphysics, and I'm trying to fit into scientific here. Um, so... <laughs> It's not impossible. It's a great challenge, and I welcome it. So, so, so you have precognition, and then you have prophecy. What's the difference? Precognition is an umbrella term, uh, which okay. encompasses 
the, you know, the other terms you'll often see are prophecy, which it means literally saying before, and it's kind of typically associated with religious contexts and literary contexts. Um, mm-hmm. So a prophet being someone who spoke, you know, uttered, uh, you know, something that was to come or uh, a writer who, you know, who had a, you know, prophetic, you know, text or whatever. Um, the other terms you'll sometimes see are premonition. Uh, premonition means it sort of connotes warnings. Um, uh-huh. And so it tends to be used in the context of bad things. You know, we say we have a premonition of someone, you know, the death of a loved one or a premonition of uh, a plane crash or a premonition of 9-11 or something like that. Um, uh-huh. And another term that's that's being used more and more, particularly in, in parapsychology, is presentiment. Uh, and that is feeling before, feeling the future. Uh, and that sort of connotes this idea of outside the, the outside conscious awareness, nevertheless being sort of influenced in some way by uh, by something in the future. And and it's an area that parapsychologists have actually studied a lot over the ca- over the past two and a half decades. Um, it's really the most interesting. I think some of the most interesting parapsychology research is in the field of presentiment research um that is people uh studying how your you know autonomic responses uh, or uh your brainwave patterns or your skin conductance or your heart rate and things like that can be influenced by a stimulus uh that's that's coming down the pike you know in a few seconds or whatever um there's a lot of really a uh, lot of really good research um, demonstrating this in the laboratory, um, and uh, again, that's presentiment. So it's it's you know not knowing the future, but feeling feeling the future. So I use precognition uh-huh. as just a, an umbrella term that encompasses all of that. The point is, any kind of being influenced by the future, or knowing, or seeing, or feeling uh, future events, that's not uh, through a process of deliberate inference. Um, you know, it's not prediction. You know, standard prediction is different. Precognition encompasses, you know, somehow being influenced by something that you just can't predict um, that lies ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, then, it, I mean, it does explain why, why modern-day science is having trouble um even explaining how it exists. I mean, there is there's so much that that is left to interpretation. That you know, science, scientific facts are you know are you know kind of carved in stone. So, well, they I shouldn't mean, be. That's the thing. I mean, they're not supposed to be. You know, scientific facts are supposed to be you know subject to constant you know re uh, revision and questioning and. Uh, unfortunately, we're kind of in a, a phase of science that's kind of hardened. You know, it's kind of gotten ossified. Um, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, I, I think we're in a, I think we're in a phase of science that's kind of awaiting a big paradigm shift. 
Um, uh-huh. And unfortunately, there's a lot of resistance <laughs> before a paradigm yeah. shift. I mean, uh, there's a lot it, of yes. <laughs> people digging in their heels, you know, because they've got a lot vested in the current paradigm, you know, careers, uh, funding, and so on, you know, is, uh-huh. is vested in, in the existing paradigm. And, uh, but I think it's going to, I, I do think it's going to, to shift, if not all at once, you know, and what, you know, Thomas Kuhn called a, uh, a scientific revolution, it'll, it'll sort of shift gradually, you know, across different fields, uh, sort of in a staggered way. And I think it's going to have to come ultimately from physics because everyone looks toward physics as kind of, uh, the, uh, the arbiter of science somehow science uh, physicists are somehow seen as, as higher than all the rest of us. <laughs> scientists. Yeah. And, um, so I think, uh, but I, but the reason I think it is going to happen is because more and more people in physics are talking about retro causation. That is to say the idea that, uh, that in fact causes don't just go in one direction. You know, the reason, the reason science has been so resistant to anything like precognition for so long is because, you know, back, back in the days of, of Isaac Newton and his friends, um, Anything, any cause that went in reverse was considered teleology. Okay, that was, uh, and and that was, at that time, assumed to be a function of of divine intervention or miracles. Okay, and uh-huh. and to do to do science, you had to you had to leave God out of it. Okay, um, and so it was just so it was just no fair talking about anything smacking of divine intervention. And so yeah, that's the reason we had these, you know, rigorous rules about what was uh, acceptable scientific explanation and that they could only accommodate causes going in a single direction. And to be fair, you know, that does account for 95% of human experience. Um, you know, the, we live in a world that's dominated by entropy, uh, and it, it makes you know the, the the laws of thermodynamics and all the physical laws formulated uh, in the Enlightenment or you know in the, in the centuries after it, you know they they work very well for predicting um, things that we needed to predict, you know, and to make machines and so on, uh, and to get us to this point uh, in our technical uh, development. But you know they left a certain amount of human experience unaccounted for and, and psychologists have, you know, wrapped themselves, tied themselves in knots, you know, trying to fit human experience within uh, this kind of mechanistic framework uh, inherited from the enlightenment. And, Uh um, and the thing is now physicists are realizing that actually on the smallest scales in nature, causation doesn't go just one direction. And, um, and, and now the emerging field of quantum computing, which I think that's really where a lot of this change is going to come from. Quantum computing is where you scale up those tiniest scales in nature uh, and, and make something usable uh, out of quantum spooky uh, behavior. And, and that's what a quantum computer is. And what they're showing in quantum computing, I mean, literally, you know, 
every month there's a new article about this, you could reverse the causal order of a computation in a quantum computer, which essentially means, you know, producing an output before an input, you know? And so you're essentially talking about something like precognition uh, in a, in a computer circuit. Um, Well, I think once the implications of that are kind of fully realized, then it's, it's only then a matter of time before that sort of filters down into the other sciences, you know, because uh, already, you know, for a couple of decades, we've had a, a thing called quantum biology, which is, you know, looking for how living systems uh, uh, scale up spooky behavior of the quantum realm. Um, and it's already well known that a lot of physical processes in cells uh, and in living systems uh, are quantum in nature. They're essentially quantum computers. Well, if quantum computers allow retrocausation, uh, and if and if cells are doing this too, well, then it's a short leap <laughs> from there to understanding that well, you know, geez, maybe the brain. Uh, is a kind of quantum really is a kind of quantum computer and and if you know the quantum computers that are being built in laboratories can reverse causal order well uh, you know then maybe the brain's doing the same thing i mean that's that's really where uh, you know what i think is 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 going to be the discovery uh you know hopefully within my lifetime <laughs> i'm i'm not holding well, my breath right now but i think that i think that it's going to happen you know within a couple decades probably well we, you know they say we only use 6% about 6% of our brains and it doesn't make any sense that that's not empty space there there it's got to be used for something and it it's uh i i often describe our physical bodies um as 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 you know i i i use the analogy of a car and you know a car that had all the bells and whistles that could possibly be crammed into a car but but we you know don't have the owner's manual so we have all these bells and whistles inside of ourselves that we can utilize we just have to figure out how to utilize them yeah 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 that's really the way that's really what it is you know we've got these amazing capacities and the thing is we are using them uh, that's the thing, you know, evolution didn't just sort of uh, give us this neat feature and then just forget to give us a, 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 a user. It, it's, we're, we're using it all the time. That's what intuition is. You know, we're using this precognitive ability. And I think that, that honestly, uh, even cells are doing it. I think that this, this is a, a, a function of life itself that is, you know, it's, it's intensified in a nervous system, um, especially, uh, you know, a really, really huge nervous system like the human brain. Um, uh-huh. But I think that it's, it's, it's really probably going to turn out to be a factor in life itself. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's, if, 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 that, if that capacity, that factor of, you know, retrocausation or presentiment or whatever you want to call it gives a living organism even like just a tiny edge you know or uh, or uh, enables it to be you know just a little bit more successful than random chance you know mm-hmm. would predict then that's going to be selected for in evolution you know and given uh you know however many uh, billion years of evolution what four billion years of evolution um yeah 
you know, it's going to, it's going to produce creatures that have dreams about their future and have, uh, inklings of, of what to do next or, you know, gut feelings that turn out to be right and, uh, and precognitive dreams about events later in their lives. Well, so are precognitive dreams really synonymous with intuition? No, I mean I think intuition is just kind of the 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 more everyday way in which precognition functions to sort of guide us. Um, I think precognitive dreams are a, a way of kind of seeing it, it kind of opening up uh, the hatch on that function and really seeing it for what it is and understanding it. Um, Kind of wondering the purpose of not making it literal then. I mean, mean, there's got to be a purpose to it, so obviously we've got to be able to figure it out and stuff. But but having it be, be symbolic in so many different ways causes us to yeah. sort of go into it. Well, this is something I talk about a, a lot in the book, and I, I this is is to me the most interesting, um, the most interesting feature of of precognitive dream work is that that dimension of symbolism, <clears throat> and I think it's not it's not there's not a purpose to symbolism; it's a symptom, and what it's a symptom of is the fact that we're freely willed creatures, and you can't have information flowing from the future into the past in a way that would ever foreclose that future that sent that information back. So we're talking here about the grandfather paradox. Okay. Uh Uh, If you had, you know, it would be totally impossible to have a video quality precognitive dream about an event tomorrow that you would want to avoid. Okay. And you know, most most precognitive dreams are about not terrible things, but things that, you know, maybe make us uneasy or, or feel awkward or they're annoying. or They're about certain situations that, that are not necessarily most pleasant situations often. Um, and uh, so those we can't have a video quality precognitive dream about, you know, even something like, you know, the toilet backing up tomorrow, because I'm going to then, I'm going to then take action to prevent the toilet from backing up. Um, So instead that dream is symbolic. And I, I, I think that, that in fact, the, you know, Freud was right about how we need to interpret our dreams and the free association. He was right about how dreams disguise uh, are waking thoughts using you know what he called condensation and displacement, which simply means sort of using substitutions and puns and uh-huh. the whole sort of language of dream work that he he wrote about in his book, The Interpretation of Dreams. He was actually right about that stuff. He was wrong about the function that that those symbolic disguises serve. He thought that they were serving to hide uh, repressed thoughts, you know, forbidden thoughts. Um, and that so they had to be censored, and that 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 the dream symbolism was a function of censorship. That's where Freud went wrong, I think. But the fun, the real function, is to to preserve the self consistency of the universe, um, and and to essentially prevent paradox is one way of 
of looking at it. Um, information from the future uh, cannot uh, cannot be literal and direct and straightforward if you know if you you here in the present are a freely willed being who's going to use that information um, to you know change what you've seen. So what we receive is a sort of symbolic, distorted, disguised version of a future experience, which then in one way or another leads us to take the actions, the freely willed actions that lead to that future outcome. And so that's why precognitive, the adventure of precognitive dream work, you know, counterintuitively is not about looking forward really. It's about uh-huh. looking back in hindsight on a dream that has turned out to be precognitive and understanding, understanding how it represented that, that reality that was in the future from the standpoint of the dream. Um, but looking back on that, um, that's, the, that's what, what precognitive dream work really amounts to. It amounts to kind of uh, an archaeology. It, it's looking back on your past and seeing how your past has been shaped by misunderstanding messages from your future. Uh, and it's, and that, uh, when you, when you understand, when you start to see your, your own sort of symbolic language and the way that your, your future self has been communicated into the past, it's, um, it's really awe inspiring because the, the brilliance of the symbolism is just genius. Um, it's, it's your dreams are just ingenious uh, ways of conveying to you information that it that can't be told directly. You know, uh, like a, you know, it's often compared to a game of charades. Uh, well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that game of charades. There's a reason you can't just come right out and say what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, that's just not a possible dream to have uh, in a in a universe where you are a freely willed being that's going to create that future that needs to create that future that needs to happen in the dream. So it has to be disguised. Um, that I really think is the, is the, the reason for dream symbolism and dream distortion. Um, well, and when, in fact, when, you know, oddly enough, it, it connects honestly to the laws that govern wormholes I mean, it's really, it's, this is really bringing Freud together with Einstein, in a sense, because we're really talking about symbolism as a function of a kind of curvature of cognitive space-time. Well, let, let me add Barbara in here, too, because when I do this kind of work, and, and you know, there have been times that I have played with it seriously here, um, <clears throat> I, I go through the same process that, that, that you talk about. I look for the symbolism, and and then I see how the experience unfolded, and then then I ask myself, because to me, this is a lesson I needed to learn, so what did this teach me? Mm-hmm. So about me. You know, was it, was it, mm-hmm. what did I learn from this experience? Uh, how did I respond? Was there a better way to go? Um, you know, how do I, how do I take this information? Because it has now been, it has now been pointed out to me that that was a situation that was a learning experience that, you know, I should, you know, take another look at and see 
how did I become a better person from this experience? Because obviously it's important. I dreamt about it, you know, one or two or three nights before. So how did, what did I learn from this? Is this, this is something that I have to pay attention to. This was, even if it was the backing up of a sink or, or something like that, it, it, it was a lesson for me to pay attention to. So how do I apply this to my life and, and be richer for it? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you bring up Freud again. And you know, I was fascinated at the fact that Freud and Jung popped up all over the place. And, um, of course, Freud wrote dream interpretation, so, of course, he had to be there. Um, but but you, you, you speak of one particular instance in his life where, he had a dream and, and how it reflected on his future tremendously. You want to share that because I think that's a profound story. It's an incredible story. And I, I actually, I wrote, I wrote a, a whole chapter of my first book, Time Loops, about it. And, um, and it, has, it just stayed with me. And I just, the more I thought about it, the more, the deeper levels of, of, of meaning in that story uh, just kept coming back to me and uh and I had to like read it, take a fresh look at it in the new book. Yeah, so okay, this is this is amazing. And where do you even begin with this story because um to preface this, you know, to just to remind, you know, your listeners who may not may not be that familiar with Freud. I mean, Freud's um Freud's great uh his most famous I guess claim about human psychology was that we're governed by basically a single archetype. You know, if you want to compare Freud and Jung, Jung had a bunch of archetypes. Freud had a single archetype and that was the myth of Oedipus. Okay. Uh Uh, And to remind people what the myth of Oedipus is, um, uh, the, you know, the, the king of Thebes uh, received a prophecy from an oracle that his infant son, was going to grow up and kill him and marry his wife. Okay. That is the kid was going to marry his mother and kill his father. And so he said, well, take the, take the boy out to the wilderness and leave him to die. Okay. So, you know, a, a servant takes him out to the wilderness. And of course, some, some a shepherd comes by and rescues the boy and takes him to this other town called Corinth on the other side of the mountain. And, and the boy grows up and is adopted by the King of Corinth. Okay, and he doesn't know he's adopted. Uh, and then when he's a young adult, uh, he receives a prophecy from an oracle. You are going to murder your father and marry your mother. And he thinks, oh, my God, that's, that's horrible. I've got to get out, get out of town because I don't want that to happen. So he flees Corinth, and, you know, he's at a mountain crossroads, and this, this, this man, you know, gives him trouble, and he kills this man. Um, and of course, the man later he later realizes was his real father, the king of Thebes. Anyway, he doesn't know that yet, though. And he winds up he answers a riddle of a sphinx, and then uh, becomes the new king of Thebes and marries the the dead king's uh, wife, which is turns out to be his really really his mother, and so on. So this was the core myth for Freud, you know, that we all want to. You know, if you're a boy, you want to kill your father and marry your mother. And if you're a girl, you want to kill your mother and marry your father. Um, now, he 
he did not believe he people often think that he was he was a total skeptic about anything paranormal and that's not true he believed in telepathy he believed in uh he had a lot of superstitions and and beliefs but he did not believe in precognitive dreams and you know despite the fact that every culture in history has thought that dreams could be precognitive and that he had patients who would bring him their precognitive dreams he would find some way to say that their memory was distorted and no, it really meant this other thing. He would, he would provide a kind of convoluted psychoanalytic explanation for, for how they were deceiving themselves um, in order to avoid facing the idea of, of precognitive dream precognition. He was a function of the enlightenment. He was a, a, a you know, a, a creature of the enlightenment. You know, it's like they, like I said, they, you just back then you just could not, make a claim that, that something in the past was influenced by something in the future. Okay, well, here's the thing. In 1895, he had, uh, he awoke from, he was on vacation. He awoke from this dream about, it was about one of, the, one of his patients, um, that he was looking into her mouth. He was actually just treating her for hysteria, but he looked into her mouth, saw these white patches on the back of her throat, and some scabs uh, on her inside her mouth, and then and he could somehow see up inside her nose through her mouth. Okay, um, and there were some other things going on in the dream too. But uh, and this and this and this patient, and she didn't even want to open her mouth to show him because it was like she was wearing dentures. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, well, he awoke from this dream, and there was just so many so many symbols and and interesting things going on in the dream, and he free associated on them and. You know, and he basically from this one dream formulated his dream theory, which put him on the map as a scientist. Uh, it was a huge revolution in, in, in the sciences of the mind and so on. Uh, and, you know, he became Sigmund Freud, the great Sigmund Freud, because of this dream. All right, well, fast forward 23 years after, after he had this dream. Um, he developed oral cancer as a result of a lifetime of, of cigar smoking. And it started with white patches at the back of his mouth. Uh, he had to have a sequence of surgeries, which left his mouth full of these scabs uh, because there wasn't enough tissue to heal them over. It was very disgusting. They were very crude surgeries they had to perform uh, back in the 19-teens. Um, and, uh, and ultimately over the course of this really awful year of his life, they had to remove his palate. Okay. Uh, they had to, they had to cut out his palate. So you could see inside his nose from inside his mouth. All right. Wow. Just like, just like what happened in the dream, in the mouth of his patient in the dream that put him on, on the map, you know, uh, 23 years earlier. And he actually, and he wound up having to wear this crude kind of uh, denture, kind of prosthetic uh, in his mouth, and he could barely open his mouth because of that. Uh, so again, just like, just like his patient in this dream. Um, and in fact, in the dream, when he's looking, uh, when he's, you know, I- I examining his patient, he says, you know, it's only your own fault. Okay. Well, <laughs> Well, uh, you know, this, he never, he never in his writings acknowledged this connection between, between what was happening in his 
body uh, and that dream, that famous dream of his. And in fact, uh, you know, all but no one really knew what was happening. He didn't write about these specifics. I mean, we had to, you know, read uh, his biography to find out about this. He didn't, you know, tell people exactly. And he, he lived actually another 15 years after, after this horrible surgery. Um, uh, he could barely talk, um, but he, you know, he wrote some of his best books after that. But he was, he was really the biggest and worst upheaval in his life. Um, and so what, you know, but th- th- this was discovered, um, that the similarity between his dream and what, what happened in his mouth, uh, 23 years later, uh, was sort of identified and discussed by a, um, another psychoanalyst and surgeon back in the 1980s, I think, um, you know, many years after he was, before he was gone, uh, sort of made this connection, but it's really stunning. Um, when you look at the, the, the dream and then look at his own, you know, what happened in his life, uh, it's, you know, clearly a precognitive dream. And in fact, there's a lot of other evidence that he was a precog, you know, uh, sort of anticipating things in his writing and in his um, in other aspects of his life. Um, but, you know, here's a guy who basically founded his career on telling the world what dreams were, but denying... <laughs> the existence of prophecy and, and fulfilling, you know, fulfilling that prophecy, you know, fulfilling an actual prophecy in the, in the process of evading the whole issue of prophecy. So just like Oedipus, <laughs> right? So, you know, and, and the, the funny thing is that, that Freudian writers love to go back and reinterpret Freud using his own theories. You know, that's just, that, that's the game if you're a psychoanalyst, you know, is you, you know, you, uh, you know, so you go back and re do a clever rereading of, of Freud through the lens of, of Freud's Oedipus complex. But, he, but literally it's true that he was essentially living out the myth of Oedipus without knowing it. You know, he was evading prophecy and in the process fulfilling it, you know? Uh, so I just think it's a, it's amazing. It's an amazing story. Um, it was a long answer to your question, but yeah, he's, uh, it's, it's an incredible, it's an incredible case. And well, there are a yeah, lot I of t- cases like that, of dreams that span decades of a person's life. It's, it's, it really is amazing. And, and, you know, a lot of times people will, you know, dream of something and they'll go online and they'll look for, you know, an explanation of the symbolism of whatever it is, and I tell people to create their own their own symbolic dictionary because if if you know, I mean, my goodness, um, <clears throat> wasn't in a dream, but it was in an altered state. I can remember saying to some lady, I, "I'm seeing you with antique buttons," and and you know, I said, "You know, my wife." might want to check out, see if it's something you might want to collect, if it's something that might have relevance to your life. And, you know, four or five months later, she got back to me and she said, I have no idea where antique buttons came in. And, you know, when when we were talking and, and she said, I've looked at antique buttons. They don't turn me on at all. And And I looked at her and I realized, I said, huh, is there maybe an older person that is pushing your buttons and giving you all sorts of anxiety and she said <laughs> oh my god yes <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah and it was so 
So it was, you know, I got a symbol, the symbol I interpreted from my standpoint, which was inappropriate. Had I only said to her, antique buttons are relevant here, you know, she might have figured it out a lot faster than I did. But so so if right. you're going to have a, a dictionary for what what things are symbolic of, create your own because, you know, all you're going to get is someone else's interpretation of a symbol that may not apply to you. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. And this is why I, uh, you know, I, I think I, I I have sort of a love-hate relationship with Carl Jung, which is probably just, you know, you can detect in the, in the, in the book, you know, on the one hand, he yep. was a you know, very important uh, figure in sort of leading us to being able to talk about these kinds of experiences um, uh, without ridicule. You know, he sort of gave people permission talk about paranormal phenomena in a way that no one else had, you know, in the, in the 20th century. Um, so he was, you know, really important figure for that reason. By the same token, he imposed uh, a kind of reductive theory of his own that has ultimately, while it inspired a lot of people, it's ultimately, I think, impeded people from understanding these phenomena and I'm referring to his theory of synchronicity. I mean, it's a great uh-huh. word, you know, it's a great label to say, well, that was a really cool synchronicity or whatever, but to them to, but he did not, he was not able to provide, um, you know, he called it a principle, but it's not really, I mean, even in his writing, it's not really a principle I and mean, it's not a, a theory or an explanation. It's just sort of a label. Um, and uh, I think, um, you know, I think, understanding that we're just talking about a word and there's actually, we can actually theorize these, these phenomena now um, is I think really important. And the idea of, of just, you know, uh, like a, a list of archetypes, you know, that you can sort of plug, you know, plug your dream symbols into, uh, into these kind of pre-existing cultural codes I think really kind of limits your your impedes understanding um, because like okay. you said you have to you know the 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 meaning of lived experience is from your own personal experience your dream symbols are all taken from your own life experience now if you happen to immerse yourself in in mythology and and you know, or you're reading Carl Jung every day. Then a lot of your, a lot of those symbols <laughs> in your dreams are going to be they are going to be archetypes because that's part of your lived experience. You know, not because yeah. those archetypes are hovering out in space somewhere or in some platonic realm. It's just because that's your experience. And in the same way, you know, uh, people in Freudian uh, hardcore Freudian people and people in Freud with Freudian analysts, you know, they wind up having dreams about Oedipus and Oedipal situations. You know, they, they'll bring their doctor, you know, dreams of, that confer, seem to confirm, you know, <laughs> Freud's theories, you know, it's uh, and it's a well-known phenomenon in, in psychotherapy that like people dream in an idiom that matches the idiom, the, the theoretical orientation of therapist. Um, uh, but, but yeah, your I, symbols yeah, found, come from your life experience. I, I found that fascinating. That that the they they go to people whose interpretations you know correspond to a certain you know people who, within therapy will 
will have experiences that sort of go along with the background of the therapist they're working with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's well known. That, it's a well well known phenomenon. Yeah. That's fascinating. So so pick your therapist, you know, well before you decide to go in for to be analyzed and and taken mm-hmm. apart and put back together again. Um, yeah. And actually, be your own you know, if you. I was just going to say, if you if you keep a dream journal, you can be your own therapist very easily, um, and especially with free association. I mean, when you're free associating, you know, after a while, you understand what you, actually what modality you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it just. I mean, I, I love I I love synchronicity, though. I I just think, you know. Sorry, I really like the, those. I, I think sin, it, when things happen synchronistically, um, I think that there is a meaning there. And, well, you know, I, I don't. And, I don't disagree with that. I. I, I it's total. I, I totally agree. Although, I think the the, the meaning is about your life. Is, is simply where I, I dispute. You know, some readings of of, of the Jungian you know, theory. Some people tend to, they'll use the term synchronicity and kind of what they mean is that some higher, some higher power or higher intelligence or other intelligence, you know, is, is pulling their strings or is, or is orchestrating things in their life. And I, I'm simply trying to get people to see, no, this is your long self orchestrating this. This is you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's simply, no, that's, no. that's my dispute. And, and actually to be fair, Jung, I mean, half the time, that's what Jung is saying about synchronicity. But then in, like, the next paragraph, he'll sort of imply something different. So it's very hard to pin him down about what he means. Yeah, I, I think when things happen and they feel synchronistic, it's it's sort of like there is meaning here for you. And and mm-hmm. and, and I, I, I would go along with you. I don't think it's because, you know, God or the angels or spirit guides or whatever – are manipulating anything, I think that there's a, a, a reason and a purpose for your life at this point in time. Pay attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, but, you know, lots, lots of people like to think that, that there is that higher power, and even though they don't realize that they are that higher power, um, it's easier to say, well, God meant this to be. Well, no, not necessarily, but, you, you know, Blame it on whoever you like. There is a synchronicity there, and pay attention to what's going on. Um, right. You used another term that that I thought two terms. You know, your time gimmicks and your calendrical resonance, um, both of which I thought were fascinating, and they do apply in precog stuff. So, if you want to go in and explain those, I think that would be great. Yeah, let's take the last one first. It's calendrical resonance. <clears throat> um, this is something that I. Uh, that I discovered kind of early on in my own adventure of precognitive dream work. I, I had a few examples of, of pretty, uh, I want powerful dreams that connected very, you know, amazingly to something that happened in one case exactly a year later, exactly a year, you know, to the day. And in another case, exactly 18 years later. Wow. And I, um, so this was on my radar 
but I didn't necessarily think this was a huge, I, I didn't know how important this was going to turn out to be. But then in working with one of the uh, real sort of super precogs who appears in the new book, um, we sort of collaborated over some of her dreams. Uh, and we, and she had lots of examples of this. Um, and that got me to then look at, uh, take a fresh look at my own dream journals. Fortunately, I had been keeping a dream journal for um, uh, two and a half decades, basically. Um, you know, I, I, I had been uh, recording my dreams since um, I had been in graduate school, basically, back in the early 90s. And I had decades of electronic dream journals, you know, in, in word files and stuff uh, with, with, with no thought about precognition. I mean, this is before I, I ever got interested or even knew about dream precognition, but uh, anyway, so I was able to go back through my dream records and find other examples of this very striking examples. Uh, and, and then I started noticing this uh, even in the literature and in other people's dreams that they'd share with me and so on. And I realized, oh, this is huge. Um, there is some, and I, I, I do some speculation, some sort of informed speculation about what, how this may work uh, uh, cognitively. Um, we, there, there's, there's a lot of reason to think that we do possess kind of a, a calendrical map in our heads um, that we, we do unconsciously kind of know what day it is, even if we don't consciously know what day it is and, and that those, the dates of the year or at least like uh, times of the year, fine grained sort of times of the year resonate with each other through our biographies. So that is to say um, uh, just the same way, you know, you suddenly feel sad, on a certain, you know, you're like, God, I feel really sad today. And then you look at the calendar and realize, oh, it's the fifth anniversary of when your mother passed away or something like that. You know, that, that's yeah. a common experience in our folklore of, of, of emotion, you know. Well, I think the same thing's working forward in time as well, that, that certain dates of the year, you know, when so, if something important is going to happen to you on this date in, you know, five years you may well have a dream tonight about that, you know, that is in fact about that event five years from now. Um, uh, and <clears throat> when you keep a dream journal over the span of more than a year, you can start to see this. Uh, and it's really, it's just, it's just incredible. I mean, it's, and it's really prevalent. Like any, any, any sort of really standout uh, emotional experience, um, you are liable to have precognized in a dream a year or multiple years uh, beforehand. For instance, the births of both of my daughters. Um, I I went back, uh, and uh, sure enough, there they were there were very specific details about both of the births, and and in both cases, exactly a year to the day beforehand, I I had a dream about that those specific details. Um, and it's uh, you know there are a lot of examples of this in the new book, 
Um, so, you know, it is, it's, a, it's a feature that deserves a name, and I call it calendrical resonance. Um, that is to say, the way that dates in the calendar, you know, resonate with each other in our biographies. Um, it's, yeah, so it's, it's one of the big things to look for uh, in your precognitive dream work. And if you're fortunate enough, you know, it's never too late to start keeping a dream journal. If you're fortunate enough to already have a dream journal, uh, it really pays to go back uh, back to your dream journal um, and look for these things because it's it's mind blowing. I mean, it's you know it's one thing to to have a precognitive dream that's uh, you know about an event you know the next day or the next couple days. You know that's that's amazingly cool, but to to realize that somehow uh, an event you know today was already in my head <laughs> you know 18 <laughs> years ago. That's that is that is mind blowing, and it, that really uh, <laughs> that'll that'll really do a number on your your uh, beliefs about about who you are. So uh, it's a very powerful experience to experience this. The other one you mentioned, time gimmicks. Um, I've found that uh, that dreams that now I think that most dreams i suspect that maybe all dreams contain precognitive material i can't prove that i'll never be able to prove that but uh-huh. um i, I think a lot, i think it's a probably a basic function of dreaming but dreams that you realize precognitive and especially dreams that you realize were precognitive right when the event is happening right when the precognized event is happening they those dreams often contain some kind of symbol or motif or some element that signals that you were going back to the dream in hindsight. Um, and often it'll be a symbol having to do with anachronism of one kind or time travel or something like that. I, in my case, you know, I'm a science fiction fan from my whole life. And so, so motifs from science fiction, TV series, and movies, you know, Doctor Who or the Terminator or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever time travel, you know, uh, you know, Star Trek episodes, you know, uh, about time travel. Those things are active dream symbols for me in dreams that actually turned out to be precognitive, and I realized it at the time that the event was happening. Um, uh, so this is a this is a really cool thing to look for too, because that that too is mind blowing in its own way. Because what you're seeing in a time gimmick is actually a representation of you now in the present, looking back at the dream, and you've written it in a dream that happened, you know few days ago or a year ago or multiple years ago, you know, that, that it's, it's like, it gives you vertigo to kind of see this reflection of your current consciousness in the record of an old dream. Uh, it's very, mm-hmm. it's bizarre and and just, wow, it'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll cause an altered state <laughs> to, to have this realization. Um, no, I can imagine. And, and it seems that, that, Time becomes a, a different sort of concept when you're realizing that, that that in the past you've gotten hits of something that has happened, you know, 20 years later or whatever, 
and mm-hmm. and you know if you happen to have a dream journal that's that's fabulous because it just it gives you an i an an idea that the time is is more fluid than than you really had thought and mm-hmm. if if you can but see the, the the fascinating thing is okay so so you saw something long ago repeated especially with the time of your children's birth um so if you have more children we you know will that still apply to that or i mean do you ever wonder you know are there more on the way or or was it just those you have two right two yeah I mean, no, no current plans to have more, but I mean, it's, those are just examples. I mean, those are just examples. I mean, those were, you know, those are, those are big events in the landscape of my life. You know, they're, uh, our, our life is kind of a, you know, a landscape that's mostly level and with has, has a few peaks and valleys and a few, you know, really high peaks, you know, those are, those high peaks are the ones that, that, you know, are the really powerful moments. And those are the ones that, that I think you'll, uh, are visible from a long way off. You know, and uh-huh. and those are the those are the kinds of things that I think that are likely to surface in uh, in a precognitive dream a year, multiple years um, beforehand. Now, that is not to say that that it's only clinical resonance that determines when you may have a dream about a future event. Um, uh, I, there are a number of factors that I think play into sort of precipitating a dream about something in the future. And, and you know, a da- the, the date of the calendar is just one thing that could sort of uh, uh, spark a dream about <clears throat> a future event. Another thing, another factor, and it's probably even more important, I don't know, I, I suspect it could be as important or even more important than calendrical dates, um, is what I call thematic resonance. And that's where just an experience that, um, that that is similar to a future experience in some way um, will will then precipitate a dream that night that is about that future experience. Um, I can give you one example of this. Um, it's not in the book, but uh, I uh, <clears throat> this was about two years ago. I was uh, I, I had been staying up late. Um, um, thinking about I was writing something about the David Lynch movie Eraserhead okay mm-hmm. and I thought it important to know what that you know that movie if you haven't seen it but the, the point is I was I was writing and reading uh, about this it was kind of preoccupying me anyway I was then uh, laying in bed and kind of meditating in bed as I often do and I had a flash vision Okay, and this often occurs in meditation, and these are very often precognitive, so I, I, I write them down whenever I can. Um, anyway, the flash vision was of a, a robot head, okay, and it was a robot, and it, has like, it was like a dome head of a robot with like a few antennas sticking off and a single eye right in the middle of it. And I just, you know, a very striking, very brief flash, but I, I okay, I sort of, I drew it in my, in my notebook, uh, and I wrote robot head next to it. And I didn't make any connection to what I had been thinking about that night, which was the movie Eraserhead. But anyway, so fast forward about, it was about a week and a half, okay? I was on, on vacation with my family, <clears throat> visiting my mom in Colorado, okay? And I, <clears throat> I sort of spontaneously decided to get out an old box in my mom's basement 
that contained my Legos from when I was a kid because I thought, well, my daughter was sort of just old enough maybe to start playing with Legos. I thought, well, she might like these. And so I, I went out, <clears throat> went down and got this box, brought it up to the living room and sort of dumped out this big box of Legos on the floor. And what should I find <clears throat> in the bottom, bottom of this box of Legos was a little robot eraser from you know, it was probably circa 1979 or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I vaguely remembered it, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, I remember that. It was a little blue robot eraser and it had this little domed head with these little three little antennas sticking off it and a single eye right in the middle. And it was almost exactly what I had seen in my vision a few weeks, you know, or a week and a half or two weeks earlier. And I just immediately recognized, I immediately got, went, ran and got my dream journal and I set it right next to it. And it was like, oh my God, it's just, just uncanny. Like I just, I love it when that happens. It was so obvious and literal. And I didn't even think about the connection though, the, that I had actually been thinking about eraser head that evening. Yeah. So you see there was a them- thematic, there was a reason I had that flash vision that night about this discovery that was ahead in my future, you know? It's not like, you know, there, I, you know and here, here's where, you know, uh, people in the Jungian vein may say, well, that was a synchronicity. Well, no, I don't think it was a, a synchronicity. It was a, it was a precognitive, it was a precognitive vision. It could have be as, just as easily been a dream about uh-huh. an event in my future. But it was precipitated. There was a reason I had it then, which is that I had just been thinking about Eraserhead, and that sparked an association, you know, to something that was coming down the pike in my future, which was an eraser with a distinctive head. And so, what do wow. I, you know, have a vision of, you know, a, you know, a, a robot head that turns out to be an eraser robot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and it's that associative, those associative connections. That that go across time, that run across time. Uh, associative links are really the kind of sinews in the unconscious, and I think that they uh, they extend across across our lives, you know, past, future, um, and that's that's why that's why that free association step of precognitive dream work is so important because it's the associative mm-hmm. links, uh, those those associative links that are, that are often the connection um, between you know, a dream and a, and a, and a future experience. Um, but and, in any case, that, that, yeah. Well, you, you also, I mean, one of the, the cool things, too, you, you mentioned that that you can get these inspirations, these visions, these insights um, in, other, in other states of consciousness. And you, you mentioned lucid dreams, out-of-body experiences, trance, sleep paralysis, and meditation. So there are other places where you can get this kind of information. Um, and yeah, in, in, almost, in almost all of them, you're going into alpha in, in, in many of these states here that, that, you know, that, that I'm familiar with. Um, so that, so that you're, you're in, a, in, a, in a state of um, openness, I guess, is the best best word to use with it um yeah sort of receptivity your, is your, what I, yeah 
Okay. Yeah, same same thing. You're you're conscious I in my terms I would explain it as the ego goes away and you have a an open flow of information from another level of yourself to speak to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. I, I totally agree. I think that um I think people draw too many you have too many names for different states of consciousness. And I, I really uh-huh. have come to suspect that they aren't that different. They're all kind of versions of the same thing. And it's this, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's precognition. I mean, I, I, you know, there may be other stuff going on and, and a lot, a lot of people, most people will argue that there's other things going on. You know, people will say that, well, we're also, you know, being telepathic and we're also, you know, remote viewing and all that stuff. I, I, you know, I like to be kind of reductive about it and see how much I can explain. <laughs> this is a precognitive <laughs> model, and I'm I'm kind of dumbfounded at how much really uh, fits this model. Um, uh, but I think I absolutely think you're right that that you know whatever you want to you can call it trance, you can call it uh, you you can uh, you know, and then we have these various dream states. Uh, and you can call it meditation, whatever. I I think that that they're all opening us up to the same thing. And yeah, it is kind of openness, receptivity, whatever. But in any of these states, you're liable to get information from your future. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, some people are more prone. You know, some people are, are better at it than others. I mean, some some of us slip into those states very readily. I, I say us. Some people, I don't. I mean, I'm 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 I wish that I were the kind of person who, you know, had visions very readily in waking life, or you know, heard uh-huh. heard voices that you know might give me advice or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I I'm not that person. I know a lot of people who are. I know a lot of psychics who who are just very facile at at, at doing that and it's like oh, that's so cool i'd love to <laughs> i'd love to be able to do that i i do have long experience with zen meditation and and so so that will take me to a state where i occasionally have those kinds of visions and uh and that is and that state that practice has also enabled me to sort of utilize hypnagogic uh uh-huh. states a little bit but but yeah i i think some people are more natural um but yeah, I think it's all the same thing, really. Yeah, see, this is this is where um, I call it. I go to the zone because mm-hmm. I, I've done this for, for decades, and and it mm-hmm. is a state of receptivity. It is probably a state of alpha, um, and so in see that's easier for me than not going to the bathroom when I wake up and writing down dreams. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But 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 I you know it's different strokes for different folks for sure. Sure. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I think the big thing is this kind of state is is very different from prayer and stuff like that because um, you're listening, you're not speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's right. There's mm-hmm. there's there's a form of they, they call it empty-headed meditation, which is. Mm-hmm. easy for anybody to do and it's a it's a matter of emptying your mind for you start mm-hmm. out with like five minutes and if stuff drifts in you just kick it out and say thank you and you go back to emptiness and mm-hmm. the better you get at it you you, you stretch it theoretically to about mm-hmm. 20 minutes where you can sit with an empty head and mm-hmm. and 
allow things to flow through. Um, mm-hmm. And and some that's people, what I mean you know, Zen. yeah, yeah. That's what and, I mean. And it, I, it, that's what I'm doing in Zen. Yeah. It, it, exactly. So, for people that you know have trouble remembering their dreams, you know, there are other ways of getting to this frame of mind. And I, I don't want to call it energy because that just you know that's that, that that's too metaphysical. Um, I, I would say that it gets to the spot inside of you where you're not thinking, you're listening. And and yeah. if you can get to that place, that, then you will get impressions. And when you get impressions, write them down because those are those are valid valid impressions of something coming from another level of you inside and quite often you know it it can be it can be profoundly insightful and you know well and if you if you write down your impressions in that kind of experience it does become like a dream journal you can do the the free association with the symbols that you get and and the whole thing and and see if it doesn't work the same way i i think the fact that you know, every everybody has a different way of getting to that spot within them, and some people are very good at remembering their dreams. Some people can write volumes of their dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I get tidbits here and there, and I, you know, I look at them and it's, you know, you gotta give me something better to work with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's. Whenever I read a book, I try to put myself through the exercises and stuff that if there if there are exercises in them and and I have found that that trying to remember my dreams has been a lot more difficult than I remembered yet I can go into that zone and get impressions in a heartbeat so um realizing that there there is that similarity between the two modalities of getting into that place where these images can come through to you, you know, should should be, I think, encouraging to some people who, you know, like me, um, you know, I go right from whatever that zone is into let me let me make this dream better and, you know, reprogram it in a different way and, and then I know I'm taking charge of whatever's going on in my head, so that's not allowing a flow. That's me determining what I wanna hear. So, um mm-hmm. You know, and and it's 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 hard to call that while you're in the middle of it because you're having such a good time that you know you don't yeah. want to say okay, let me just listen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this is why I'm not so interested in lucid dreams. Actually, I mean, I I actually I enjoy lucid dreams, but when I'm in a lucid dream, I don't I really don't try to control anything because I I just want to see what what it's going to show me. <laughs> you know, because I'm interested. <laughs> in, yeah, I'm gonna, I want to be able to write it down later and see what the message is because I don't, I'm, I'm more interested in that than in like using it as a playground to, <laughs> to, uh, to uh, uh, indulge my, my uh, whims or whatever. But yeah, what you're saying uh-huh. is absolutely true. And, and if it's, uh, you know, like you said, different strokes for different folks. And if you're someone who is able to access that zone um, in waking life in whatever way, um, use it. And, and, you know, and another one, another big one, uh, is creativity, um, art, doing whatever artistic, whatever medium you work in. You know, whether you're uh, whether you write poetry or paint pictures or photography, or um, or, or anything, that too is another 
like uh, it's a zone. It's a, it's a, it becomes a kind of trance state uh, where you are really channeling from your future. And in fact, I think that's what I think precognition is really what creativity is. That's kind of a special sauce of creativity, uh-huh. as far as I'm concerned, that we are getting ideas for our future. And that's actually the work, the research that I'm, I'm working on now, um, hopefully for a, a future book, uh, if I can ever get time to write it, um, uh, on, on, you know, when you start to delve into the biographies of artists and writers, uh, it is amazing. I mean, it's just, it's just like studying dreams. I mean, artworks and novels and stories and paintings are often very often precognitive of things that that then subsequently happen in in the person's life in an artist's life um so it's i just think it's a really rich theme for studying this phenomenon and for people who you know they may not you know may not be great at at recalling your dreams but if you're if you do an art of some kind uh, treat that the same way. Uh, oh as yeah. You treat well, dreams. You know. That's, yeah. <clears throat> that's how I did the deck of cards. I did. I got all the symbols through dreams, and mm-hmm. painted them, and 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 actually they got published. It's called the Cosmic Deck of Initiation. Um, oh and yeah. It, so so yeah, I I totally I I, I hammer at people. Constantly, you know, you have to have some sort of creativity in your life in order to fuel the, the forward motion of your life. That's that's where the that's where the energy comes from. Um, it, it's from a creative process, and it can be any kind mm-hmm. of creativity. And and it, 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 you know, the spectrum is phenomenal. Um, right. Or even doing well, even the, doing it. Just, to say though. Yeah. One of the values of, of dream work, besides just the, the precognitive dimension, is just seeing, uh, seeing, awakening to the fact that even when you're not trying to be creative, at night your brain is incredibly creative. I mean, just the oh, yeah. amazing brilliance of the symbolism. And, uh, you know, when you start to awaken to that, it really kind of empowers, I think, empowers you to be creative in, other, in, in waking life, you know, in your art or whatever. Um, uh, I think that's that's one of the real values of any kind of dream work. Honestly, I'm sorry I interrupted, but that I just no, think that's, that's a okay. really important thing to say. Because when you are being creative, no matter how you're doing it, it, it there is an energy that you that you click into that that energizes you, and you know people who you know take joy in their creativity you know, can go out without eating and without sleeping for long periods of time because they're just so into it that they become a part of it. And when you become a part of it, you know, it, it just takes over and it's it's exciting mm-hmm. as heck. And yeah. Um, yeah. so, so you know, when people say they've they've got a block or of some sort, I, I, I always stress, you know, get into some form of creativity that you enjoy and let it, let it break through this block that you've got because it does, it does. The, the minute you you get into that creative energy, there is a flow that happens that is quite remarkable, and and uh, on top of the creativity being exciting, you do get symbols, you do get things do flow through your head. I used to do needlepoint constantly, and it was boring work. But but the more bored my intellect became, the more creative my mind became, 
and the, the wonderful things came ideas for poetry or ideas for writing or it was just amazing that by boring my mind i allowed excuse me i'm going to get metaphysical my spirit to come through and mm-hmm. manifest stuff in my reality mhm yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so it so so and I love the fact that you've got you know you bring up the fact that there are so many different ways of opening yourself up to the precognitive stuff so that you don't have to just do you know the dream journal is a fabulous idea and it works beautifully um but you know it doesn't have to be just dreams it can be symbols and things that you get that are out of place within reality and yet there it is and and I, I, I imagine most people have, from time to time, said something that just didn't go along with what was happening. But it was it was brilliant, or you don't know where it came from. But write it down. I want to remember it. Um, and that's again a part of precognition. Something just came through that needed to be brought to recognition, and there it is. Right. Right. Absolutely. So. So. Absolutely. so um, I did. I want you to talk just for a little bit about your blog because your blog is fascinating, and I spent some time on it today. And um, tell people about Nightshirt. Yeah. Okay. So my blog is thenightshirt.com. It's all one word: the nightshirt, as in um, what people used to wear to bed. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I. Uh, I. Yeah. I started the blog. It's funny. I. I came up with the name of the blog. I think I started it back in, gosh, a long time ago now, 15 years ago maybe. Uh, and I didn't even really have an idea for, for for what exactly to write about. But but somehow the the, the name, as the name actually came from an old dream of mine. And uh, and the, the 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 sort of tagline of uh i forget what it is it's um sightings portents forebodings and suspicions and i had a vague idea that i wanted to write about dreams but i not even i didn't even really even know about precognitive dreams at that point um but you know somehow i i wound up yeah i wound up having a couple ufo sightings a couple years after that you know i'd never actually had a sighting of anything uh you know and i wound up writing about UFOs and then that sort of led into writing about parapsychology and 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 so it it really the, the dream you know that 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 inspiration to like start a blog was precognitive of what the uh-huh. blog ultimately became um but yeah I I the blog has sort of been my uh sketchpad essentially for the books um that I've written uh and so I write a lot about uh about Precognitive uh, precognition in dreams. Uh, I write a lot about precognition in the arts uh, and in literature. Um, uh, and some of those articles will be expanded into the next book I write on, on precognition and creativity. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, occasionally I'll write about other paranormal phenomena like UFOs and stuff. And I write a lot of science mm-hmm. fiction as well. But um, well, I say, yeah, I, I, so, so I invite people to, to visit the night shirt and check it out. And if you like what you see, then uh, there's uh, more of that in my, in my books. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I, I had a lovely time going through it. And I, 
I am sorry, but we are out of time here. Um, so I want to thank you so much, and I, I highly recommend people pick up your book. It's Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. And we've, been, we've had Eric Wargo on with us tonight. I want to thank everybody so much. It's uh, been a heck of a, an exciting trip for me, and I hope for you too. And it's going to be up on YouTube and on Rumble tomorrow, and, of course, it's going to be in the archives as well. So please join us tomorrow. Mark has a great show. And uh, if you like what you see on the YouTube and the and the, um, the Rumble account, please subscribe. And we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.